Book the Third, Part Five of Birds of Prey by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five, The Compact of Gray's Inn. The sand which ran so swiftly in the glass which that bright young urchin love had wrested from the hand of grim old time ran with an almost equal swiftness in the hour-glasses of lodging-house keepers and tradespeople and the necessities of every day demanded perpetual exertion on the part of mr hawkehurst let charlotte's eyes be never so bright and charlotte's society never so dear for captain paget and his protege there was no such thing as rest the ingenious captain took care of that greater part of the labour should be performed by valentine while the lion's share of the spoil was pounced upon by the ready paw of the noble horatio just now he found his pupil unusually plastic unusually careless in his own interests and ready to serve his master with agreeable blindness since that awkward little affair at forret de chaine that tiresome entanglement about a king of spades which had put in an appearance at a moment when no such monarch was to be expected captain paget had obtained the means of existence in a manner which was most respectable if not altogether honest for it is not to be supposed that honesty and respectability are by any means synonymous terms it was only by the exercise of superhuman address that the captain had extricated himself from that perplexing predicament at the belgian watering-place and it may be that the unpleasant experiences of that particular evening were not without a salutary effect upon the adventurer's future plans it was touch-and-go work val he said to his companion and if i hadn't carried matters with a high hand and sprung my position as an officer in the english service upon those french ruffians i don't know where it would have ended it might have come to a metallic ornamentation of the ankle and some amiable four-four-four who has murdered his grandmother with a red-hot poker and extenuating circumstances for your companion murmured valentine i wouldn't try it on with that supererogatory king again on this side of the channel if i were you the captain bestowed a freezing look upon his flippant protege and then commenced a very grave discussion of future ways and means which ended in an immediate departure for paris where the two men entered upon an unpretentious career in the commercial line as agents and travellers for the pantanese of an improved kind of gutta percha which material was supposed to be applicable to every imaginable purpose from the sole of an infant's boot to the roof of a cathedral there are times when genius must stoop to pick up its daily pittance and for twelve months the elegant horatio paget was content to devote his best energies to the perpetual praise of the incorrodible and indestructible and incombustible indian rubber in consideration of a very modest percentage on his commercial transactions in that material to the extent the persuasive eloquence of a burke or a thurlow in order to induce a man to roof his new warehouse with a fabric which you are aware will be torn into ribbons by the first run of stormy weather for the sake of obtaining two and a half per cent on his investment may not be in accordance with the honourable notions of bayard and yet in a commercial sense may be strictly correct it was only when captain paget had made a comfortable little purse out of his percentage upon incorrodible and incombustible that he discovered the extreme degradation of his position as agent and traveller he determined on returning to the land of his birth 
joint stock companies were beginning to multiply in the commercial world at this period and whenever there are many schemes for the investment of public capital there is room for such a man as horatio paget a man who with the aid of a hired brahman can inspire confidence in the breast of the least daring speculator the captain came accompanied as usual by that plastic tool and subaltern valentine hawkehurst who being afflicted with a chronic weariness of everything in life was always eager to abandon any present pursuit in favor of the vaguest contingency and to shake off the dust of any given locality from his vagabond feet captain paget and his protege came to london where a fortunate combination of circumstances threw them in the way of mr sheldon the alliance which arose between that gentleman and the captain opened a fair prospect for the latter mr sheldon was interested in the formation of a certain joint stock company but had his own reasons for not wishing to be identified with it a stocking horse is by no means a difficult kind of animal to procure in the cattle fairs of london but a stocking horse whose paces are sufficiently showy and imposing a high stepper of thoroughbred appearance and mouth sensitively alive to the lightest touch of the curb easy to ride or drive warranted neither a kicker nor a bolter is a quadruped of rare excellence not to be met with every day just such a stocking horse was captain paget and mr sheldon lost no time in putting him into action it is scarcely necessary to say that the stockbroker trusted his new acquaintance only so far as it was absolutely necessary to trust him or that the captain and the stockbroker thoroughly understood each other without affecting to do so for horatio paget the son of prosperity arose in unaccustomed splendor he was able to pay for his lodgings and was an eminently respectable person in the eyes of his landlord he enjoyed the daily use of a neatly appointed brougham in which only the most practised eye could discover the taint of the livery stable he dined sumptuously at fashionable restaurants and wore the freshest of lavender gloves the most delicate of waxen heath blossoms or creamy tinted exotics in the buttonhole of his faultless coat while the chief flourished the subaltern was comparatively idle the patrician appearance and manners of the captain were a perennial source of profit to that gentleman but valentine hawkehurst had not a patrician appearance and the work which mr sheldon found for him was of a more uncertain and less profitable character than that which fell into the share of the elegant horatio but valentine was content he shared the captain's lodging though he did not partake in the captain's dinners or ride in the smart little brougham he had a roof to shelter him and was rarely unprovided with the price of some kind of dinner and as this was the highest order of prosperity he had ever known he was content he was more than content for the first time in his existence he knew what it was to be happy a purer joy than life had ever held for him until now made him careless whether his dinner cost eighteen pence or eighteen shillings whether he rode in the most perfect of browns or walked in the mud he took no heed for the future he forgot the past and abandoned himself heart and soul to the new delights of the present never had philip sheldon found so willing a tool so cheap a drudge 
Valentine was ready to do anything or everything for Charlotte's stepfather, since his relations with that gentleman enabled him to spend so much of his life with Charlotte. But even in this sublimated state of mind, Mr. Hawkehurst was not exempt from the great necessity of Mr. Skimpole and humanity at large. He wanted pounds, his garments were shabby, and he desired new and elegant raiment in which to appear to advantage before the eyes of the woman he loved. It had been his privilege on several occasions to escort Mrs. Sheldon and the two younger ladies to a theatre, and even this privilege had cost him money. He wanted pounds to expend upon those new books and music which served so often as the excuse for a visit to the lawn. He wanted pounds for very trivial purposes, but he wanted them desperately. A lover without pounds is the most helpless and contemptible of mankind. He is a knight-errant without his armor, a troubadour without his loot. In his dilemma Mr. Hawkehurst resorted to that simple method which civilization has devised for the relief of pecuniary difficulties of a temporary nature. He had met George Sheldon several times at the lawn, and had become tolerably intimate with that gentleman, whom he knew now to be the Sheldon of Gray's Inn, and the ally and agent of certain bill discounters. To George he went one morning, and after requesting that Captain Paget should know nothing of his application, explained his requirements. It was a very small sum which he asked for, modestly cautious that the security he had to offer was of the weakest, but he only wanted thirty pounds, and was willing to give a bill at two months for five and thirty. There was a good deal of hesitation on the part of the lawyer, but Valentine had expected to meet with some difficulty and was not altogether unprepared for a point-blank refusal. He was agreeably surprised when George Sheldon told him he would manage that little matter, only the bill must be for forty. But in proof of the liberal spirit in which Mr. Hawkehurst was to be treated, the friendly lawyer informed him that the two months should be extended to three. Valentine did not stop to consider that by this friendly process he was to pay at the rate of something over a hundred and thirty per cent per annum for the use of the money he wanted. He knew that this was his only chance of getting money, so he shut his eyes to the expensive nature of the transaction and thanked Mr. Sheldon for the accommodation granted to him. And now we've settled that little business. I should like to have a few minutes' private chat with you, said George, on the understanding that what passes between you and me is strictly confidential. Of course. You seem to have been leading rather an idle life for the past few months, and it strikes me, Mr. Hawkehurst, that you're too clever a fellow to care about that sort of thing. Well, I have been in some measure wasting my sweetness on the desert air, Valentine answered carelessly. The governor seems to have slipped into good berth by your brother's agency, but I am not Horatio Nugent Cromy Pageant, and the Brougham and the Lavender kids of the promoter are not for me. There is better money to be picked up by better dodges than promoting, replied the attorney ambiguously. But I suppose you wouldn't care for anything that didn't bring immediate cash? You wouldn't care to speculate the chances, however well the business might promise? C'est salon, that's as may be, answered Valentine coolly. You see those affairs that promise so much are apt to fail when it comes to a question of performance. I'm not a capitalist. I can't afford to become a speculator. 
I've been living from hand to mouth lately by means of occasional contributions to a sporting weekly, and a little bit of business which your brother threw in my way. I've been able to be tolerably useless to him, and he promises to get me something in the way of a clerkship, foreign correspondence, and that kind of thing. Huh, muttered George Sheldon. That means eighty pounds a year and fourteen hours' work a day, letters that must be answered by this mail, and so on. I don't think that kind of drudgery would ever suit you, Hawkehurst. You've not served the right apprenticeship for that sort of thing. You ought to try for some higher game. What should you say to an affair that might put two or three thousand pounds in your pocket, if it was successful? I should feel very much inclined to fancy it a bubble, one of those dazzling rainbow-tinted globes which look so bright dancing about in the sunshine and explode into nothing directly they encounter any tangible substance. However, my dear Sheldon, if you really have any employment to offer to a versatile young man who is not overburdened with vulgar prejudices, you'd better put the business in plain words. I will, answered George, but it's not an affair that can be discussed in five minutes. It's rather a serious matter, and involves a good deal of consideration. I know that you're a man of the world, and a very clever fellow into the bargain. But there's something more than that wanted for this business. And that is patience. The hare is a very fine animal in her way, you know. But a man must have a little of the tortoise in him, if he wants to achieve anything out of the common run in the way of good luck. I have been working and waiting, and speculating the chances for the last fifteen years, and I think I've got a good chance at last. But there's a good deal of work to be done before the business is finished, and I find that I must have someone to help me. What sort of business is it? The search for an heir-at-law of a man who has died intestate within the last ten years. The two men looked at each other at this juncture, and Valentine Hawkehurst smiled significantly. Within the last ten years, he said, that's rather a wide margin. "'Do you think you would be good at hunting up the missing links in the chain of a family history?' asked Mr. Sheldon. "'It's rather tiresome work, you know, and requires no common amount of patience and perseverance.' "'I can persevere,' said Valentine decisively, "'if you can show me that it will be worth my while to do so. You want an heir at law, and I'm to look for him. What am I to get while I'm looking for him, and what is to be my reward if I find him?' I'll give you a pound a week for your travelling expenses while you're employed in the search, and I'll give you three thousand pounds on the day the heir gets his rights. Huh, muttered Mr. Hawkers, rather doubtfully. Three thousand pounds is a very respectable haul. But then, you see, I may fail to discover the heir, and even if I do find him, the chances are ten to one that the business would be thrown into chancery at the last moment in which case I might wait until doomsday for the reward of my labors. George Sheldon shrugged his shoulders impatiently. He had expected this penniless adventurer to catch eagerly at the chance he offered. Three thousand pounds are not to be picked up in the streets, he said. If you don't care to work with me, I can find plenty of clever fellows in London who will jump at the business. And you want me to begin work? Immediately. "'And how am I to pay forty pounds in three months out of a pound a week?' "'Never mind the bill,' said Mr. Sheldon, with lofty generosity. "'If you work your heart and soul for me, I'll square that little matter for you. "'I'll get it renewed for another three months.' 
"'In that case I'm your man. I don't mind a little hard work just now, and I can live upon a pound a week where another man would starve. So now for my instructions.' There was a brief pause during which the lawyer refreshed himself by walking up and down his office two or three times with his hands in his pockets. After which relief he seated himself before his desk, took out a sheet of foolscap, and selected a pen from the inkstand. "'It's just as well to put things in a thoroughly businesslike manner,' he said presently. "'I suppose you'd have no objection to signing a memorandum of agreement. Nothing that would be of any use in a court of law, you know, but a simple understanding between man and man, for our own satisfaction, as a safeguard against all possibility of misunderstanding in the future. I've every reason to consider you the most honorable of men, you know. But the honorable men turn round on each other sometimes. You might ask me for something more than three thou if you succeeded in your search. Precisely, or I might make terms with the heir at law and throw you over. Perhaps that was your idea? Not exactly. The first half of the chain is in my hands, and the second half will be worth nothing without it. But to prevent all unpleasantness, we may as well put our intentions upon record. I've not the least objection, replied Valentine, with supreme indifference. Draw up whatever memorandum you please, and I'll sign it. If you don't mind smoke, I should like to console myself with a cigar while you draw the bond. The question was a plight formula, the atmosphere of George Sheldon's office being redolent of stale tobacco. "'Smoke away,' said the lawyer. "'And if you can drink brandy and soda at this time of day, you'll find the de in that cupboard. Make yourself at home.' Mr. Hawkehurst declined the brandy and soda, and regaled himself only with a cigar which he took from his own case. He sat in one of the second-floor windows smoking, and looking dreamily into the gardens, while George Sheldon drew up the agreement. He was thinking that any hazard which took him away from London and Charlotte Halliday might be a fortunate one. The lawyer finished his document, which he read aloud for the benefit of the gentleman who was to sign it. The agreement was in the following terms. Memorandum of agreement between George Sheldon on the one part and Valentine Hawkehurst on the other part whereby it is this day mutually agreed, by and between the parties hereto, as follows. 1. That in consideration of a weekly salary of one pound while in pursuit of certain inquiries, and of the sum of three thousand pounds to be paid upon the rising of a certain event, namely the establishment of an heir at law to the estates of the late John Haygarth, the said Valentine Hawkehurst shall act as agent for the said George Sheldon, and shall not at any time during the continuance of this agreement do any act to prejudice the inquiry or the steps now being taken by the said George Sheldon to discover and establish an heir at law to the estates of the late John Haygarth. 2. That at no time hereafter shall the said Valentine Hawkers be entitled to a larger recompense than is herein before provided, nor shall he be liable to the said George Sheldon for a return of any monies which the said George Sheldon may advance on account of the said inquiries in the event of the same not resulting in the establishment of an heir to the estates of the late John Haygarth. 3. 
that the said valentine hawkehurst shall not alter his character of agent to the said george sheldon during the prosecution of the said inquiry that he shall deliver over to the said george sheldon all documents and other forms of evidence that may arise from his the said valentine hawkehurst's inquiries and that he shall week by week and every week as often as may be necessary report to the said george sheldon the result of such inquiries and that he shall not on any pretense whatever be at liberty to withhold such fruits of his researches nor discover the same to any one else than the said george sheldon under a penalty of ten thousand pounds to be recovered as liquidated damages previously agreed between the parties as the measure of damages payable to the said george sheldon upon the breach of this agreement by the said valentine hawkehurst in witness whereof the parties hereto have this twentieth day of september eighteen sixty two set their hands and affixed their seals that sounds stiff enough to hold water in a court of law said valentine when george sheldon had recited the contents of the document i don't suppose it would be much good in chancery lane returned the lawyer carelessly though i dare say it sounds rather formidable to you when one gets the trick of the legal jargon it's not easy to draw the simplest form of agreement without a few superfluous words i may as well call in my clerk to witness our signatures i suppose call in any one you'd like the clerk was summoned from a sunless and airless den at the back of his principal's office the two men appended their signatures to the document the clerk added his in witness of the genuine nature of those signatures it was an affair of two minutes the clerk was dismissed mr sheldon blotted and folded the memorandum and laid it aside in one of the drawers of his desk come he said cheerily that's a business-like beginning at any rate and now you'd better have some brandy and soda for what i've got to say will take some time in the saying of it on this occasion mr hawkehurst accepted the lawyer's hospitality but there was some little delay before the conversation proceeded it was a very long conversation mr sheldon produced a bundle of papers and exhibited some of them to his agent beginning with that advertisement in the times which had first attracted his notice but taking very good care not to show his coadjutor the obituary in the observer wherein the amount of the intestate's fortune was stated the ready wits which had been sharpened at so many different grindstones proved keen enough for the occasion valentine hawkehurst had had little to do with genealogies or baptismal registers during his past career but his experiences were of such a manifold nature that he was not easily to be baffled or mystified by any new experience he showed himself almost as quick at tracing up the intricacies of a family tree as mr sheldon the astute attorney and practised genealogist i have traced these haygarths back to the intestate's great-grandfather who was a carpenter and a puritan in the reign of charles i he seems to have made money how i have not been able to discover with any certainty but it is more than probable he served in the civil wars and came in for some of the plunder those crop-eared psalm-singing pierced the brain of the tyrant with the nail of jail scoundrels were always in the way of at the sack of royalist mansions the man made money and his son the grandfather of the intestate was a wealthy citizen in the reigns of anne and the first george 
he was a grocer and lived in the marketplace of ullerton and leicestershire an out-of-the-way sleepy place it is now but was prosperous enough in those days i dare say this man the grandfather began the world well off and amassed a large fortune before he had done with it the lucky beggar lived in the days when free trade and competition were unknown when tea was something like six shillings a pound and when a psalm-singing sleek-haired fellow with a reputation for wealth and honesty might cheat his customers to his heart's content he had one son matthew who seems from what i can gather to have been a wild sort of fellow in the early part of his career and not to have been at any time on the best possible terms with the sanctimonious dad this matthew married at fifty-three years of age and died a year after his marriage leaving one son who afterwards became the reverend intestate with whom according to the evidence at present before me ends the direct line of the haygarths the lawyer paused turned over two or three papers and then resumed his explanation the sanctimonious grocer jonathan haygarth had one other child besides his son a daughter called ruth who married a certain peter judson and became the mother of a string of sons and daughters and it is amongst the descendants of these judsons that we may have to look for our heir at law unless we find him nearer home now my idea is that we shall find him nearer home what reason have you for forming that idea asked valentine i will tell you this matthew haygarth is known to have been a wild fellow I obtained a good deal of fragmentary information about him from an old man in some almshouses at Ullerton, whose grandfather was a schoolfellow of Matthew's. He was a scapegrace, and was always spending money in London while the respectable psalm-singer was hoarding it in Ullerton. There used to be desperate quarrels between the two men, and towards the end of jonathan haygarth's life the old man made half a dozen different wills in favor of a half a dozen different people and cutting off scapegrace matthew with a shilling fortunately for scapegrace matthew the old man had a habit of quarreling with his dearest friends a fashion not quite exploded in this enlightened nineteenth century and the wills were burnt one after another until the worthy jonathan became as helpless and foolish as his great contemporary and namesake the dean of st patrick's and after having died at top did his son the favor to die altogether intestate whereby the royster and spendthrift of soho and covent garden came into a very handsome fortune the old man died in seventeen sixty six aged eighty a very fine specimen of your good old english tradesman of the puritanical school the royster eighty matthew was by this time forty-six years of age and i suppose had grown tired of roistering in any case he appears to have settled down very quietly in the old family house in the ullerton market-place where he married a respectable damsel of the puritan school some seven years after and in which house or in the neighbourhood whereof he departed this life with awful suddenness one year after his marriage leaving his son and heir the reverend intestate and now my dear hawkehurst you are a sharp fellow and i dare say a good hand at guessing social conundrums so perhaps you begin to see my idea i can't say i do my notion is that matthew haygarth may possibly have married before he was fifty-three years of age 
men of his stamp don't often live to that ripe age without being caught in matrimonial toils somehow or other it was in the days of fleet marriages in the days when young men about town were even more reckless and more likely to become the prey of feminine deception than they are now the fact that matthew haygarth revealed no such marriage is no conclusive evidence against my hypothesis he died very suddenly intestate as it seems the habit of these haygarths to die and he had never made any adjustment of his affairs according to the oldest inhabitants of ullerton almshouses this matthew was a very handsome fellow generous-hearted and open-handed a devil-may-care kind of chap the type of the rollicking heroes in old comedies the very man to fall over head and ears in love before he was twenty and to go through fire and water for the sake of the woman he loved in short the very last man upon earth to live a bachelor until his fifty-fourth year he may he may have been a profligate you were going to say and have had baser ties than those of church and state so he may but if he was a scoundrel tradition flatters him of course all the information one can gather about a man who died in seventeen seventy four must needs be of a very uncertain and fragmentary character but if i can trust the rather hazy recollections of my oldest inhabitant about what his father told him his father had said of wild matt haygarth the young man's wildness was very free from vice there is no legend of innocence betrayed or infamy fostered by matthew haygarth he appears to have enjoyed what young men of that day called life attended cock-fights beat the watch gambled a little and was intimately acquainted with the interior of the fleet and marshalsea prisons for nearly twenty years he seems to have lived in london and during all those years he was lost sight of by the ullerton people my oldest inhabitant's grandfather was clerk to a merchant in the city of london and had therefore some opportunity of knowing his old schoolfellow's proceedings in the metropolis but the two townsmen don't seem to have seen much of each other in the big city their meetings were rare and so far as i can make out for the most part accidental but as i said before my oldest inhabitant is somewhat hazy and excruciatingly prolix his chaff is in the proportion of some fifty to one of his wheat i've given a good deal of time to this case already you see mr hawkehurst and you will find your work very smooth sailing compared to what i've gone through i dare say that sort of investigation is rather tiresome in its earlier stages you'd say so with a vengeance if you had to do it answered george shelton almost savagely you start with the obituary of some old bloke who was so disgustingly old when he consented to die that there is no one living who can tell you when he was born or who were his father and mother for of course the old idiot takes care not to leave a blessed document of any kind which can aid a fellow in his researches and when you've had the trouble of hunting up half a dozen men of the same name and have addled your wretched brains in the attempt to patch the half dozen men turning up at different periods and in different places into one man they all tumble to pieces like a child's puzzle and you find yourself as far as ever from the man you want however you won't have to do any of that work added mr sheldon who was almost in a passion when he remembered the trouble he had gone through the ground has been all laid out for you by jove as smooth as a bowling green and if you look sharp 
you'll pick up three thou before you know where you are i hope i shall answered valentine coolly he was not the sort of person to go into raptures about three thousand pounds though such a sum must needs have seemed to him the wealth of a small rothschild i know i want money badly enough and i'm ready and willing to work for it conscientiously if i get the chance but to return to this matthew haygarth your idea is that there may have been a marriage previous to the one at allerton precisely of course there may have been no such previous marriage but you see it's on the cards and since it's on the cards my notion is that we had better hunt up the history of matthew haygarth's life in london and try to find our heir at law there before we go in for the judsons if you knew how the judsons have been married and multiplied and lost themselves amongst herds of other people you wouldn't care about tracing the ramifications of their family tree said mr sheldon with a weary sigh so be it exclaimed mr hawkers carelessly we'll leave the judsons alone and go in for matthew haygarth he spoke with the air of an archaeological hercules to whom difficulties were nothing it seemed as if he would have been quite ready to go in for some sidereal branch of the planigenets or the female descendants of the Hardicanute family if george sheldon had suggested that the intestates next of kin was to be found there matt haygarth by all means he said he was on jolly good fellowish terms with the dead and gone grocer's son already and had the tone of a man who had been his friend and boon companion matt haygarth is our man but how are we to ferret out his doings in london a man who was born in seventeen twenty is rather a remote kind of animal the secret of success in these matters is time answered the lawyer sententiously a man must have no end of time and he must keep his brain clear of all other business those two conditions are impossible for me and that's why i want a coadjutor now you're a clever fellow with no profession and no particular social ties as i can make out and your time is all your own ergo you're the very man for this business the thing is to be done except that a certainty it is only a question of time indeed when you look at life philosophically what is there on earth that is not a question of time give the crossing sweeper between this and chancery lane enough time and he might develop into a rothschild he might want nine hundred years or so to do it in but there's no doubt he could do it if you gave him time mr sheldon was becoming expansive under the influence of the brandy and soda for even that mild beverage is not without its effect on the intellectual man as to this haygarth case he resumed after the consumption of a little more soda and a little more brandy it's a sure success if we work it properly and you know three thou is not to be despised added george persuasively even if a fellow has to wait some time for it certainly not and the bulk of the haygarthian fortune i suppose that's something rather stiff returned valentine in the same persuasive tone well you may suppose it's a decent figure answered mr sheldon with an air of depreciation or how could i afford to give you three thou out of the share i'm likely to get no to be sure i think i shall take to the work well enough once i get my hand in but i shall be very glad of any hint you can give me at starting well my advice is this begin at the beginning go down to ullerton see my oldest inhabitant i pumped him as dry as i could 
but I couldn't give myself enough time for thoroughly exhaustive pumping. One has to waste a small eternity before one gets anything valuable out of those lazy old fellows. Follow up this Matthew from his birth. See the place where he was born. Ferret out every detail of his life, so far as it is to be ferreted. Trace his way step by step to London, and when you get him there, stick to him like a leech. Don't let him slip through your fingers for a day. Hunt him from lodging to lodging, tavern to tavern, into jail and out of jail. Tantivy, yoikes, hark forward. I know it's deuced hard work, but a man must work uncommonly hard in these days before he picks up three thou. In a few words, the game is all before you, so go in and win, concluded George Sheldon, as he poured the last amber drops from the slim smoke-colored bottle and swallowed his glass of brandy undiluted by soda. End of Book the Third, Part Five